you have a copy of God's Word there in front of you, I invite you to go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, or from, excuse me, Romans chapter 2. We finished Romans chapter 1 last week, and we will be continuing to make our way uh, through the book of Romans tonight, uh, looking at the first 16 verses uh, this evening of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and uh, if you found your place there, I invite you to stand with us as we pay honor to the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, this is God's Word to His people. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impertinent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who, sh who show the, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. This is God's word, and we should be thankful that he has preserved it and kept it for us. Let's go to him this evening in prayer. Father, we come to you tonight. If we're honest, we're tempted to think much more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And Father, tonight, this text breaks down for us why we shouldn't have such high thoughts of ourselves. So, Father, we ask that in the moments to come, you would give us eyes to see that clearly, ears to hear that clearly, and a heart to believe it as well. Father, I pray for the person who's sitting in here this evening that does not know you or has fooled themselves into thinking that by being religious they know you. I pray that you would convict them through the preaching of your word that they might put their faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And Father, we understand tonight that even though 
We may rise to sing songs about the gospel and preach the gospel message. We're not the only people in this city who will be doing that this evening. Think of our friends at Boulevard Baptist Church. Think of our friends at Cherry Street. And we ask that you would enlarge their witness, their gospel proclamation, that they would reach people around the city for your glory and those people's collective good. Be with us now as we uh, venture into your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We live in the midst of what some would be willing to call a VIP culture. We want to be upgraded to VIP status and get treated like royalty. In fact, companies have capitalized on our desire to want to be treated like VIPs to the fact that they will even offer packages, goods, and services that are a step above that cost us more money, but we will be treated better. Truth be told, we are often tempted to believe that we are somebody. We are tempted to believe that we are far more important than we actually are. We live in the age of helicopter parents who hover around their children, making everything easy for them because they're somebody. We live in the age of lawnmower parents, as Time Magazine put it recently. Parents that mow down every obstacle in front of their children to make life easier for them. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And left to our own devices, we will idolize ourselves. Nowhere is this clearer in the way in which we expect companies and industries to bend over backwards to keep us or a block of people happy. Southern Baptists have done this at times, saying that they were going to boycott industries that were secular in nature for not following into line with beliefs of what it means to follow Christ. Even though those people who were running those companies were unregenerate themselves. And you, yes you, if you're honest, have treated people poorly because you believe that you're somebody. The drive through at the Taco Bell takes too long and you're screaming at somebody. Don't get what you ordered from Amazon in 35 seconds from them knowing in your brain that that's what you're going to order through your Prime membership. You're on the phone. We love to think highly of ourselves. And what this text, this passage tells us, and this is where the play on words comes, we are not very important people, we're very indicted people. Tonight, the Apostle Paul is going to make it clear where we stand before God. We stand indicted tonight, and we need to explore what that indictment means for us practically, and then also for how it plays itself out in the way that we see other people. And so tonight, we're going to make our way through this particular text, considering three ways in which this indictment is played out. And the first way that it's played out tonight is in this idea of being religiously condemned. Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. 
therefore, you who judge practice the same things. For we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Here the Apostle Paul shows us that what one of the primary effects of being Jewish and believing that your Jewishness saves you is it leads you to naturally condemn other people. But in your religiosity, or we might say in a 2020 type way of saying it, even in your spirituality, you stand condemned. The Jewish people were in danger of believing that their religiousness, their supposed spirituality, and because of their ethnic heritage, made them exempt from facing the outpouring of the wrath of God. They believed that by pressing into their identity, into their ethnic identity, that they would be able to escape God's final judgment. The problem with that is that God doesn't look at people on the basis of their ethnic identity or their ability to keep religious rules or their ability to be good moral people. God looks far deeper than the surface. We're reminded of this when we read in the Old Testament that Samuel, on direct orders from God, is sent to Jesse's house to pick out the next king. And Samuel looks at all of Jesse's sons and says, these bros look amazing. That's not actually what he says. But he looks at them and says, they look like kings. They must be kings. And what does God say to Samuel? Oh, Samuel. Oh, Samuel. God, is, I am not concerned with their outward appearance. I'm not concerned with their kingly attitudes and height and stature. I'm concerned about what's going on in their heart. I'm concerned about what's going on at the heart level. And we see this elevated in this particular text. Look at verse 3. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, and doing the same? Wait a minute, time out, stop, hold on. You who are doing the same. Yes, you, Jewish people, who are tempted to judge these Gentiles and believe your ethnic heritage, I see the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. To quote scripture, they're evil continually. Outwardly, they look upright. Inwardly, they're dead. Outwardly, they look clean. Inwardly, they're nothing more than whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they look healthy. Or as you know, one of my favorite quotes from Conrad Mabwewe, the disease is on the inside. This is a far more deadly. We'll just make the application point here. This is far more deadly than the flu, far more deadly than coronavirus. It's a spiritual deadness that is masked with religiosity. And Christians are tempted to believe that they're not given to such things 
and we have people who line our pews and line our chairs and listen to sermons, believing themselves to be Christ followers merely because they can adhere to a list of rules or standards. But inwardly, they are dead. Inwardly, they do not know Christ. They're Sunday school teachers. They're worship leaders. God help us, they're small group leaders or adult leaders or they're people of influence and authority. But inwardly, they are like whitewashed tombs. This is what Paul is saying here. You stand indicted because inwardly, despite your ability to look religious, to look right, to look like the religious scholar that you supposedly are, they're dead on the inside. There's no true love for Christ inwardly. Make no mistake tonight, beloved. You may be clever enough to fool people around you into believing that you are a Christ follower. You can fool people by coming here, by sitting here, by attending, by answering. Yes, I know you guys do talk in small groups. It was a joke earlier. You can calm down. You say the right things. You have deep prayer requests, supposedly. You look like you follow Christ. But inwardly, you know you don't know Christ. You're no different than a person who's clinging to their ethnic identity. It is no worse to cling to your ethnic identity than it is to cling to a fake spiritual identity, one that is religious in nature, but knows nothing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If I were going to ask you, what is the status of your identity tonight? You only have two choices. It is a binary decision. I know our world does not love binary decisions anymore. We want to try and come up with five, seven, nine, eleven ways. There are only two options. You are either identified with Christ or you're identified as being hostile towards Christ. We're going to unpack that more as we go through the book of Romans. That prior to your conversion, you, those of you who are Christ followers, have, prior to coming to know Christ, were hostile in your minds and actions towards God. But tonight, there's only two options. So for you, non-Christ follower, you, person who does not know Christ, what is the status? Where would you put yourself tonight? And on what basis would you claim your identity? There are multiple ways to claim our citizenship. There are multiple ways to claim our membership at different things. There is only one way to claim our identity and citizenship in heaven, and that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ that you are able to claim that identifying marker. So, number one, we see that there is a religious condemnation. Now, we might be able to say, I'm not as pious, I'm not like those religious people. I, when I read through uh, the Gospels, whenever the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders come on the scene, I audibly boo and hiss as I read. Boo, hiss, bad guys, boo. You guys are the worst. 
People are like, why are you yelling at your Bible? These guys are bad. Lest you think that you're somehow off the hook tonight because you're not like those guys. Notice number two, that in addition to religious condemnation or being religiously condemned, this indictment is impartially executed. Look at verse number five. But in accordance with your hardness and your impertinent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation on the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. This judgment, this indictment, remember, indictment is a formal charge that is brought against someone. The formal charge that is brought against every human being from Adam till the end of civilization. You are indicted of being a sinner, one who is hostile to God and his desires prior to your conversion in Christ. And this is an impartial execution of the indictment. God does not play favorites. He does not say you're less of a sinner than this person. You're more maybe going to be a Christ follower than that person. You're inside a specific group that I kind of like more. No, everyone stands impartially indicted. And that indictment is carried out in its execution. What does that indictment carried out look like? The pouring out of God's wrath. Or if we were British, we'd say wrath. Which just shows that you don't know how to pronounce an A. Anyway, sorry. We won't go down that road for we do not have time. Doesn't matter if it's wrath or wrath. Here's the bottom line. God is pouring it out and it is vengeful in its execution. You stand or sit condemned. And God's wrath will be poured out on you. We don't like to talk about wrath. That's why we don't like to read the Old Testament. We want the nice stuff. At the end of the day, as much as Christians love to walk around making fun of, we should qualify this, at the end of the day, as much as evangelical Christians love to walk around making fun of Joel Osteen and his goofiness and his smiling and live your best life now, at the end of the day, I think, more evangelical Christians and more Baptists want that than they do to read this passage. It's just easy to make jokes because everybody laughs and identifies with that and is like, yeah, that's wrong. But secretly, inwardly, we don't want to hear about God's wrath being poured out against us. We don't want to press into the reality that each and every one of us stand condemned in front of a holy God. Now, notice that this is a just God. This is a righteous God. And notice how he's judging them. Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. What are your deeds pre-conversion? Sin, wickedness, opposition to God. You stand opposite of the expectation of what it means to be holy. In fact, we could say it this way. 
Your deeds are really the account of your life. And God, when he goes to judge your life, has to judge on the basis of what's on your account. And despite your ability to live morally, to be somewhat according to the world standard good, but never put your faith and trust in Christ, when God goes to draw on that account, the overwhelming message, because you are a sinner separated from a holy God who cannot save yourself, the comeback line is this. In big, bold type, if it were on a screen, would read, insufficient funds. Because left to yourself, you cannot save yourself. Someone needs to step in and make a payment that you cannot make. Someone who didn't live a life like you lived. Someone who's unaffected by sin. Someone who is perfectly just and righteous and holy. It's hard to preach through these sections and not just get us to Christ. But you must see that yourself, you must see for yourself and for your friends, they stand indicted. They stand unable to save themselves. They stand incapable. There is nothing that they can do except run to the feet of the cross. And by faith alone in Jesus Christ, repent of their sins and believe. That's what Paul says. Who will render each to uh, each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish. And notice the far-reaching nature of this. He says twice, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I would ask you tonight, are you trying to rely on something other than Christ to make this indictment go away? Are you like a dirty attorney who's trying to pull every trick in the book thinking there's some way you can out-finagle and out-argue God and somehow, some way, on a technicality, God will have to say, no, you're in because I didn't understand it. Beloved, trust me tonight. You cannot argue, argue your way out of this charge. You cannot argue yourself away from this indictment. You stand condemned before a holy God who must pour out his wrath against unholiness and sin. And then for the Christian tonight, we're tempted to slip back into our old Adam suits. So we're trying to grow spiritually and we're placing our confidence in something other than Christ to help us grow. We think that if I muscle it up, if I just have enough courage, if I just if I will just sit here and read long enough, if I will read enough books and I will do enough things, then I myself will grow myself. Because we're tempted to run back to our old sinful Adam suits and try and do pre-fall or pre-Christ what Christ has called us to put away and lean into and press into him. And then finally tonight, in addition to seeing that we are religiously condemned, if we're just trying to be religious and work our way to heaven, it'll never work. Not only is this indictment 
impartially executed. But finally, and this is an intentional use to be redundant, it is completely inclusive. Look at verses 12 through 16, if you will. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, if I were to ask you what that means, you would say it has something to do with the law. Apostle Paul here seems to be convoluted. What is he getting at here? Well, this judgment extends equally and inclusively to all people. And all people means all people. And the Apostle Paul is pressing into this reality that regardless of your ability to hear the word, even if you haven't heard the word, in light of Romans 1, 18 through 32, the law of God is naturally written on the human heart, which means this tonight. Any and all who die hearing God's word or not hearing God's word and have not placed their faith and trust in Christ will spend eternity separated from God. There is no mythical man who is in the deep jungles of the Amazon or the deep woods of some place where there's woods. I just blanked on great wood places. That was embarrassing. We could just say, look, you find a person anywhere in this globe that hasn't heard of God's word or has heard of God's word. The bottom line is this. They don't put their faith and trust in Christ. They spend eternity separated from God in a real and literal hell. We have lost our urgency. We have. We have lost our urgency. And frankly, to be honest with you, it's not just the people in this room. Christians everywhere have lost their urgency. We have gone from playing and believing this message and the weight of it to thinking, yeah, maybe there are multiple ways. One of the greatest faults of the post-modernity culture, one of the greatest faults of liberal, inclusivist theologians is to suggest that there are multiple ways to God and we're all just on our own pathway going there. If we really believe that, why would we send you to Uruguay? If we really believe that, why would we pray that God would raise up missionaries from this group? If we really believe that, why would we share the gospel with anybody? Give me a break. We've lost our urgency. And not just college students. I'm so sick and tired of hearing about how millennials are dropping out of the church in groves. Everybody's dropping out of the church in groves. We've lost our collective minds because we do not believe 
that people who don't trust in Christ will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Because if we did, we would be telling everyone. If we did, we would be late to class most days. We'd be late to work. We'd get fired from our jobs. They'd be like, you can't talk about Jesus here. I'm on my lunch break, so sue me. You're fired. Okay, I'm suing you. Let's do this. Let's dance. We are so timid. We are so scared. We are so frightened. And we live in the, the country that has the most access to God's word. We have the most access to evangelistic tools. We have the most access to conferences. We have the most access to books. We have the most access to everything. And yet we do not go because we simply do not believe or we do not care. You cannot. You cannot tell me that you care and spend every day on a campus with thousands of college students and never speak the name of Jesus Christ. You cannot tell me you care and go to your work and have long extended conversations and things that people know about you and discuss TV shows and podcasts and books and movies and, and music and, and, and the weather and, and, and sports. And yet those people don't know that you know Jesus Christ. You can't tell me that you care. You can't tell me that this has affected you. You can't tell me that you really believe. And furthermore tonight, if I'm just being honest, I can't tell you that. I'm trying, but I got to have people go with me. But I, I'm just being honest with you. I'll go with or without you. We'll go do the Bible study. I'll sit there by myself. I'll just pray Greg Gilbert into existence. I know he's in Kentucky. He can be here. Boom. We'll do it together. I don't know what's going to happen. We have got to take this seriously. And we can't rely on the adults in this church to do it for us. And you can't rely on this staff to do it for you either. Because God has sovereignly ordained and placed you in places where we can't get to the people who you're around that have never trusted in Jesus Christ. So tonight, in accordance with Ephesians 4, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, I challenge us all to be great commissioned Christians who understand that every person we come in contact with is indicted before a holy and righteous God. And their greatest need is not to avoid the coronavirus and is not to get the same president elected or a different president elected or to have their stock market go up or their income to go up or their student debt to go down. Their greatest need is to put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Let's pray together this evening.